A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com slash Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. We really want to be ahead of that curve. So we knew we needed to raise more money. So what we did is we took all of our LLCs that we've created to date, we put them all into one vehicle, we talked to all of our investors, got them on board of why we were doing it. You know, we, we saw it as a, as a de-risking opportunity for them. And then we went out and raised in total about $43 million that allowed us to control up to 2 million square feet of space between these two neighborhoods. On this episode, I'm speaking with Brian Murray, the CEO and founder of Shift Capital. Shift is a certified B Corp impact real estate group headquartered in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. They're focused on aligning capital and philanthropy with underserved communities. Brian is a seasoned entrepreneur who strives to be a catalyst for positive change. Through his work at Shift, Brian is focused on finding better solutions at the intersection of society's most difficult urban challenges, intergenerational poverty, urban revitalization, access to opportunity, and community displacement. Shift Capital is a national leader in creating more inclusive neighborhoods. Shift's first fund, Shift Neighborhood Fund, takes a place-based approach to neighborhoods in North Philadelphia that have suffered decades of neglect. Through inclusive economic strategies, mission-aligned capital, and a community focus, Shift has sought to change the narrative around how communities can benefit from positive change. Brian is a Peace Corps alum and an MBA graduate of Yale School of Management. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. So let's get this thing uh, kicked off. Let's jump right in to the Brian Murray history lesson. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you found yourself involved with as a kid. Sure. Well, I grew up in outside of Philadelphia in New Jersey in a kind of pretty classic suburban town called Morristown, New Jersey. And, you know, grew up in a, in a pretty working class family. My, you know, my dad started working at 18. My mom's a teacher. And, uh, you know, my childhood, for the most part, was pretty idyllic. You know, rode my bike. I was a swimmer as a kid, so I was in the water all the time. But um, I got two siblings, and they're influence on me was, you know, pretty important, but the town and my teachers and the schooling was all kind of a pretty idyllic situation for me. You know, I had a note written down here that both your mom and dad were really influential. Your dad, I think you said, started working at a really young age and your mom being a teacher, you mentioned kind of being around kind of hardworking and teaching influences was really important to you. Yeah. You know, my whole family on my dad's side is a kind of working class, you know, put on the helmet, put in the time, be on time, be reliable, but also very affable, you know, kind of Irish Catholic family. And and that certainly 
you know, is something that I've taken with me. And then my mom uh, has been in the special education world for a long time and has always kind of had a activist bent, whether it's for kind of her students or for the work that she does. And, you know, I think that those two things kind of combined in what I'm doing today, for sure. Yeah. So when it came to college years, you didn't actually go to anywhere particularly fancy, I'll say. You, you chose a state school. And why did you why did you choose that? Well, my parents were excited I chose a state school um, for the cost, <laughs> for sure. But, you know, again, I was swimming, you know, kind of nonstop at that time through high school. And, you know, and I was also a swim coach at the same time. And, you know, part of the reason I chose the college is Trenton State College when I first started. It's now called the College of New Jersey, which is a actually pretty competitive liberal arts school in New Jersey, often kind of compared as a more competitive Rutgers, which is the more better known school. And it was chosen because I really liked the coach. And I was swimming four or five hours a day and was having, you know, some some issues with burnout and really wanted to go to a school where I felt like you know, I could really buy into the coach. Uh, you know, I'm a people person and, and you know, chose well in that regard. But, you know, one of the things about going to a state school that was really eye-opening and really important for me personally was, you know, I'd grown up in a pretty kind of wealthy Philadelphian suburb and kind of maybe on the other side of the tracks compared to my peers. But when I got to Trenton State, you know, I was in school with you know, the person who was number one in their class in Newark Public High School and folks who were coming out of out of Trenton and Atlantic City and a lot of other areas of New Jersey and just was exposed to, you know, a whole nother world that really was important for me to see what else was out there and the different environments that people were growing up in. And, and I think that that school really provided uh, that type of grounding for me. Mm. And when you were at Trenton State, what did you end up studying and, and why did you go into that field, I guess, at that time? Yeah, I think I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I always loved business and I ended up choosing accounting. My mindset was probably a little bit more like an engineer's. I felt like a lot of the other business degrees, and <laughs> no offense to other business degrees, but were a little lighter touch. And I felt like with an accounting degree, I'd really learn the nuts and bolts of a business. And, you know, I always felt like if I, you know, if I wasn't having account, it was easy to move away from accounting, but it was something I'd always take with me and, and certainly has been, and I think was a smart choice. So I'm going to go ahead and call you a fledgling accountant at this time in your life. And, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, moving forward here, give the listeners a sense of where that took you early in your career. Cause I'm, I'm looking at my notes here and, and we've talked about this, but it's pretty cool to see the path of where you started as swimmer, coach, slash, you know, nuts and bolts accountant to where you are today. But what were those first couple stops in the early career days? Yeah, I went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers right out of school. And at the time, I was actually hired by Pricewaterhouse. I started at PricewaterhouseCooper. And I knew pretty quickly that it wasn't the, the career path for me. This was 1998, 99. So we were right in the middle of the dot-com boom. I was 23 years old. You know, at that time, 23, you know, in the middle of the tech boom, it made a lot of sense to kind of, I could. I, I I'll say there was a privileged time to be a 23-year-old because I had choices that I think 23-year-olds in prior 
decades and years uh, did not have. And I'd always had an entrepreneurial bent, even though I did study accounting. You know, I've always been interested in owning my own business and and heading in that direction. And I was approached by a, a high school uh, friend who had a business idea, who you know knew my business background and needed a partner. And I didn't have a family, and I jumped. I jumped off and really, you know, ran into the tech world at 23 in 1999. And we had a lot of things going for us. We raised our first set of angel dollars. We had a great product. We recruited this really high caliber Wharton MBA grad uh, to be our CEO. Things were looking as scripted, at least as far as kind of typical tech looks like. 2000 hit and all the venture capital firms started you know, hedging their bets a little bit. Was interested in what we were doing, but kind of wanted to see what the mark, what happened with the market. We started to bleed cash, and you know, we were four partners at the time. Two of the partners, who were majority shareholders, decided to to hang it up. And you know, my other partner and I, who were minority partners, but you know, felt I think a certain amount of obligation to keep going at it. We kind of buttoned ourselves up. I started bartending at night, you know, working during the day. We hooked up with a technology outsourcing firm in India to, to get our, our product done. And I was actually in India myself, uh, August of 2001, you know, working on that product. And then, um, you know, I was in North Jersey. I was in Newark, New Jersey and watched September 11th happen live. And our partner actually was on Wall Street at the time. Our technology partner was located on Wall Street. And and that was it. We really didn't have any more pathways at that point. So uh, so that didn't work out. And I think it was, you know, really a moment in time to reflect of what I was doing. And the reality is I, I loved the environment that we were we were in, what we were doing. It was all very exciting. But there was something in the back of my mind just kept nagging me, like, what is this doing to make the world better? And I really started to you know, understand in those, you know, kind of mid 20 years that, you know, having a mission orientation or a mindset towards doing good was just more important to me than than making money. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting and pretty fun segue into a moment in time, which when we spoke earlier, I, I really feel like it resonated to me as a really important turning point in your young life. And it has to do with getting a haircut at a local spot. Run us through what that story was, because I think it's a really unique turning point and in, in where things are for you and your, and your team today. Yeah. So I was living in North Jersey, pretty close to Newark, New Jersey, in a town called Bloomfield, New Jersey. And you know, Bloomfield is, is the backdrop and, and that whole area. It was kind of the backdrop for the Sopranos, just to give you a sense. And and I used to get my hair cut at a old school Italian barber shop there. And, you know, one day I was getting a haircut waiting and um, uh, actually I was in the chair and there was a gentleman in, in there chatting with the barber. They've known each other for 40, 50 years. And the context is, is that the barber, you know, it's like classic barber talk. And, and, and I would say classic, maybe Italian North Jersey barber talk and, you know, kind of crass and. And in walks this guy and he's talking about, you know, he's talking about kids and he's talking about all this, this youth facility that he's been working on. And, you know, so I started talking to him. It turned out he used to be, he used to run Division of uh, Youth and Family Services for New Jersey. And he was working on a, 
a new facility for youth that were getting kicked out of other correctional facilities in New Jersey. And I was, you know, totally kind of enamored with just a total change in pace. And I said, sure, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested, you know, would, could I apply for a job there? And he said, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and so I went in for that interview and, and I don't know if we talked about this, but, you know, as a swimmer, one of the things I talked about was that I was a coach in my days. And, and so they ended up hiring me for the, the sports staff. And there was four of us, uh, three of us, excuse me. And the other two guys were ex NBA basketball players. <laughs> and obviously this is a podcast. I'm a five eleven, you know, uh, white kid who loves to play basketball, but Nevertheless, and, and, and we don't have a pool at this facility. So, you know, they put me on the sports team. I'm on, you know, my other staff members are 6'11 and 6'3 and one played for the Charlotte Hornets and, and the entire facility loved these guys, right? The funny thing is, is that anytime, you know, we played basketball pickup all the time, all the kids who were all teenage years all wanted to play me because they could beat me all the time. But, you know, I was there for about nine, 12 months nine to 12 months. And, you know, it's just so influential in so many ways. I mean, one, you know, I was really one of only a few white people in the entire facility. And that was, you know, that was a education in of itself, both from the perspective of being one of the only white people there, but also learning, you know, from my colleagues who, you know, oftentimes had been in these kids' shoes in the past and really understanding, you know, how they grew up and, and the, and the environments and neighborhoods that they grew up. And the other thing that was really kind of eye-opening for me was understanding a lot of these kids were in this facility for sexual crimes. And I was always struck by how, you know, we as a society, when we, if, you know, if I were to mention to you that I was working with, you know, at-risk kids who had, you know, um, maybe been locked up for, because of, you know, sexual uh, challenges that they had or, or situations that they they were in and and they were in this facility for that reason, there would be a lot of empathy for that kid. And the reality is is that sexually abused kids, sexual abusers, ninety percent of the time, uh, I, I believe the statistic is, have been sex- were sexually abused themselves. So we're always, you know, they are victims. But just, you know, if I start talking about an eighteen or nineteen year old who, you know, in this context you know, we as a society just absolutely, you know, shame and diminish that person and, and really think that they, you know, put them in a bucket of, of almost completely intolerable. And I just, you know, was able to see that, you know, there's just a, these kids are kids and, and all of a sudden they are going to be 18 and they're still going to have this, this scar. And, and as a society, we're, we're not really doing much to help them. And it was, it's always been kind of continues to be influential to me. Context is everything. And, and we can never be in someone else's shoes, but we can sure try. And trying to be in these kids' shoes and understand, you know, how challenging their life was really sets a context for, you know, these these folks as adults in our society. It seems like this was a really impactful time, not only for the reasons you mentioned, but it still sort of set you on this course to do more giving back. And you went into the Peace Corps next. I think you were there for two or three years. What drew you to sort of committing yourself for that time? Was it the experiences you had at that facility with with the kids and kind of learning? Or was there were there other things at play during that time for you as well? 
I think it was all the above. I mean, you know, I think I, I suddenly became a sponge for this other side of the world and wanted to find and experience what was happening and where my place was. The Peace Corps is one of, I still can't find to this day a better example of an organization that puts people on the ground in a more kind of dignified and integrated way than the Peace Corps. You know, it certainly has, you know, there are some knocks on the Peace Corps, I, I recognize that, but it was a opportunity for me to go overseas and see, you know, see the United States and see other context. It was also an opportunity for me to try out teaching. So I was a you know, teacher for two years there and see, you know, going back to that family history, seeing if teaching was, you know, a pivot for me. And, you know, I would say that really what my biggest takeaway was, you know, really emphasizing to me that I am an entrepreneur, one, two, that wasn't necessarily, I really understood that, that, that businesses could do good. And I felt that that effectiveness of a business doing good was going to be a better place for me than, let's say, the nonprofit world. And I really struggled with the nonprofit world when I was there, watching reports getting written about funds that were trickling down into the neighborhood I was working in and the disconnect of what, you know, how those reports were getting written about those funds and really the actual impact on the ground. And I didn't want to have a career where, where I was not being absolutely effective with my day-to-day to making the world a better place. And so that's my big takeaway from Peace Corps. The other one is, you know, it really allowed me to be in a community and learn a different community and even learn a different language. And even within language, you get to learn, you know, people and, you know, that kind of empathy and that deliberateness to understand the other side of, you know, someone else's perspective is that's paramount and foundational to who I am today. Yeah, I was going to say this was a catalyst for the next step, which was going back to school and focusing on impact investing. And I think we're around 2008, 2009 at this point. And it really seems to have set up the current mission at Shift. And I want you to talk about that time, going back to school, diving back into the books, so to speak. What was that like after so many years sort of in this other world? And in many ways, learning and in, in, like, in schooling in those situations as well. So I went back and got my MBA with a specific purpose to transition into that doing well, doing good world. And the opportunity to take experience back into the classroom is, I think, just an incredible opportunity. I I was a good student, you know, but I don't know if I was really in it before going back to grad school. And grad school was an opportunity to really understand the context of what I'm learning in a way that I wasn't able to just, you know, life experiences weren't there yet. And the goal was this impact investing world. And I, and I went, I used the opportunity in the summer, my summer internship to go and work for a group called Acumen Fund. And Acumen Fund is a nonprofit venture capital group that really pioneered, you know, the new age of, of social entrepreneurship and impact investing specifically investing in entrepreneurs who were delivering goods and services to the world's poor. But it was, you know, definitely focused internationally. It was my first opportunity to see the interest in impact investing from kind of the next generation, watching how capital was going to start transitioning into 
you know, wanting to do good with investments. And so it really was, you know, an incredible experience, both the combination of school, my time at Acumen Fund to influence what I was going to do. Now, the reality is I didn't know what I was going to do still at that time. I, I love the impact investing world. I think I probably discovered I'm more of an operator. So there, there, I think there's two categories of people when it comes to, you know, this space. And that is, you know, you are, you can be an investor and you're, you're kind of on the finance side or you really need to get your hands dirty. And I, and I definitely realized in that time I needed to get my hands dirty. The question for me was, was where and how. At the time, I had my first kid, and you know that certainly. I know Chris, you just had your, you know, your first kid, and it does a lot of reorientation. I knew I wanted to be closer to home, so I knew I didn't want to be traveling around the world doing the, the type of work that Acumen Fund was doing. And you know, I got approached by a college friend who had a real estate deal. You know, this is in 2008, the uh, market 2008, 2009. So the Great recession was was upon us, and he asked me if we wanted to do a real estate deal together in our kind of home city of Philadelphia. So we we ended up buying a note from a bank on a thirty unit property. We had a local operator who was going to be our partner. I was not a real estate person at all before, but I think through through Peace Corps, I was I always valued the idea of place. Right, I always understood. You know, if you go back to the correctional facility in New York. You know, my experience at Trenton State, if you think about the Peace Corps, you know, all of that was recognizing that the environment that a kid grows up in is really paramount to their future kind of success. And it was doing that real estate deal and really kind of being on the sidelines on it a little bit, you know, kind of watching it happen. But watching, first off, we bought it as a note because the prior landlord had run it into the ground. So, you know, understanding like, wow, there's a lot of, slumlords out there, right? And and are they the ones that are operating in these neighborhoods? And, you know, if I'm a kid walking by this dilapidated building that's got uh, drug trade happening in it, how is that affecting my life? And when we renovated that building, you know, recognizing that now, you know, neighbors are walking by this building and it's no longer a blight and there's good tenants in there and it's well taken care of, it really clicked into me. You know, everyone talks about a light bulb moment in in, in Reflection, this was probably my light bulb moment, but I would say, you know, mine was more of those like lights that like slowly turn on. A little bit of flicker at first. That's right. That's right. So, so I, uh, I was graduating. I turned to my wife and, you know, said, look, I think there's something here. I, I had kind of turned around and looked at the impact investing world and said, well, what are you all doing in, in the real estate space? And, and, you know, for the most part, there was not a lot of activity. There was affordable housing. There was investment in CDFIs, uh, which are community development finance institutions, but there wasn't a deliberate kind of impact real estate investing space at that time. And I thought, you know what, you know, I think there's going to be more here. One, two, I also kind of recognized that power of place. And when I looked at what was happening in the affordable housing world or the new market tax credit world, you know, I felt like it was scattershot. You know, the world was you know, really set up to incentivize developers to go chase developer fees and tax credits are spread out and not really concentrated. And I really was interested in in concentrating efforts, concentrating and investing long-term in a neighborhood as opposed to multiple neighborhoods. And, you know, that's kind of where 
shift started to happen. So we did a couple more deals in Philadelphia. I really started to, you know, dive into Philadelphia specifically and where I felt like, you know, growth was going to be happening. And, you know, we started, you know, buying some properties along public transportation in a neighborhood that, in two neighborhoods that I felt like, you know, really had potential if I were to look out kind of 10, 15, 20 years. And that was really kind of the start of shift. That's really interesting to, to hear the scattershot comment, but then think through the way that you approached it, which was rather than scattershot, let's go in with precision, select a neighborhood or two, and really focus on improving the lives um, sort of at a micro level rather than this sort of large scale macro level all across the city or maybe all across the country. Uh, and as you mentioned, at this time, you know, you were really. Uh, shift itself was coming into focus. And, and it seems like one of the main drivers of that, at least early on, was the Shift Neighborhood Fund. And you mentioned to me that, that this was part, obviously, business decisions, but then part brand awareness for what Shift was becoming. Can you talk about what some of the key initiatives and drivers were in those first few years as you were making this transition? Yeah, well, let me first paint the picture of, of how a fund came into focus. So, you know, we started buying real estate in these two neighborhoods on public transportation, and we were buying them for pretty cheap. You know, we were buying large industrial buildings for probably about $4 a square foot. And, you know, there was a reason, you know, there was a lot of crime. There, There's a lot of challenges to these neighborhoods, but we were buying them in the traditional kind of project by project mindset, which is, you know, take some of our own money, bring in some outside LP dollars, set up an LLC and execute that real estate. But what we realized is that there was some misalignment of incentives to our investors if we were buying in one place, one. And then two, in a lot of these neighborhoods, the scale is not necessarily there to create separate LCs. And especially in the Northeast, when we have a lot of like smaller real estate as you as you get into the urban core. And so we wanted to be able to have some, a vehicle where we could act quickly and act with cash if we needed to. And so those two combinations, and then that's two. And then the third was we felt like the city was growing faster than we expected to. So we were worried about, we really wanted to be ahead of gentrification. And I'll, and I'll talk about that in a minute when we talk about impact. But we really wanted to be ahead of that curve. So we knew we needed to raise more money. So what we did is we took all of our LLCs that we've created to date. We put them all into one vehicle. We talked to all of our investors, got them on board of why we were doing it. You know, we, we saw it as a, as a de-risking opportunity for them. And then we went out and raised in total about $43 million that allowed us to control up to 2 million square feet of space between these two neighborhoods. And, you know, as we move into kind of the early part of what we were doing, we knew that, well, one is that we felt like one of the keys to our strategy was figuring out how to develop without displacement, to develop equitably. And there's a few components to this that I'll kind of walk through that I think were all part of these early years. And you know, one of them was, you know, really thinking about not just our real estate, but people. And, you know, really thinking about how do we 
bring people into the process early? How do we think about programming and opportunities, whether it's jobs, whether it's access to equity, access to uh, wealth building opportunities? Because what often is, you know, when we talk about gentrification, one of the one of the issues is that people in neighborhoods know that their neighborhood is going to change, but they don't necessarily have the ability to do anything about it. And by the time they do, you know, typically it's too late. Like land values have already jumped and you're stuck in a certain path. We bought so early and so cheaply that we had a lot more flexibility with our projects. We could lean into, you know, job creating maker spaces. We could lean into maybe selling some assets off to people in the neighborhood uh, so that they could build some wealth. We could lean into creating, you know, opportunities for exit strategies. And you know, I think that that was all part of those early years. I'm sure we'll dive into some of those things, but you know, that was really key to our strategy. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com blueprint. You had mentioned to me, Brian, that you felt like at that time when the wheels started turning that you said we felt like or we knew we had a tiger by the tail. And it seems like around that time when you were able to kind of control where the money was going, control the properties that you were investing in and and starting to take a deeper dive into the community and bringing in partners and local collaborators, it seemed like that was the time when, when all of that changed and as a quick time check, I think that was mid uh, 2010s, 2015, 2016 or so. Talk to me about what some of those properties were all about. I know that you did some unique things with the community, some equitable programming. Just kind of talk us through what those early years were like as you were getting rolling. Yeah. So within within that portfolio that we start, I mean, first off, it was an acquisition spree, right? So we really, once we raised money, we were you know, trying to raise money, acquire at the same time. You know, the portfolio as it sits when we bought it was mostly vacant, larger industrial assets. And some of them, you know, some of them had been vacant for 30 years and some of them had been vacant for the last few years. And some of them were just, uh, you know, dilapidating pretty significantly. And so the majority of our portfolio is probably projects between kind of 10 and $25 million. We have, for example, you know, our making studio north and south projects are each about 100 to 130,000 square feet of size, uh, former industrial buildings that we've converted into creative small business and maker spaces. So, so uh, small scale manufacturing. We have a property that was 800,000 square foot, more like a 19 acres, um, that was, uh, you know, an older 1920, 1930 industrial building. And then we did have a number of kind of smaller scattered site residential that we picked up as well. Uh, but that's kind of the mix of the, the portfolio. We started um, 
tracking impact metrics off the beginning. Um, we helped launch um, Kensington, which is a really powerful real estate accelerator for people in the community with our partners, Impact Services, CDC, and a, another developer in Philadelphia named Ken Weinstein, who really started the first Jumpstart program. We uh, created a storefront challenge. So part of this, one of these neighborhoods sits right underneath an elevated train and is a former kind of commercial corridor uh, in kind of a classic Northeast sort of sort of way. So mostly a thousand square foot print type of buildings with some residential above and, you know, and back in the heyday, you know, retail on the bottom. And just to give a little bit more context, we were also in the middle of an opioid crisis. Um, you know, uh, Kensington, one of the neighborhoods is the opioid capital of the East Coast. You know, it was spotlighted in the New York Times uh, magazine a few years ago. And, and frankly, it hasn't actually gotten better and so we've struggled with, you know, getting businesses to open up on the avenue. So we did this Kensington storefront challenge where we, you know, gave away free rent and and TI dollars and, you know, made it more of a more of a Shark Tank type of feel um, for you know about 10 spots that we had. We've, you know, successfully opened up about four or five of them to this to this day and and you know, looking for creative ways to uh, to jumpstart this this economy in these neighborhoods. One of the biggest questions that I, I recall you asking yourselves uh, during this time really had to do with what does equity mean? What does exclusion mean? Um, what are ways that you could push the envelope and, and how can you change a neighborhood for good given uh, issues like an opioid crisis, right? I would love to, sh to shift us into highlighting a, a particular project, um, which is perhaps synonymous with the way that you approach change for good and, and real estate development for good. It's a project that I think does a great job illustrating that. Um, and, and it talks about how you are leading shift today. And I want to quickly pull a headline actually from your website for this project. Um, and you speak to investing in places and people to create opportunity and a shared prosperity for all. And the idea here is deploying integrated development strategies that connect the economic and social dots across sectors, partners, and neighborhoods. And I thought that this was really great because in the end, the idea here is to serve people and to help create better lives. Without giving too much more away, will you will you tell us what that project is and, and, and talk about how that kind of mission statement is aligned at this particular property? Sure. Yeah, really excited about this project. It's a project that um, is opening up its doors just in a few weeks from now. We're in, in January. And it's our J Central project. This is our first multifamily project. So to date, we have focused mostly on job generators. So we brought about 500 new jobs into this neighborhood through our other buildings. This will be our first multifamily building. When we were kind of designing and thinking about this building, you know, we were really focused on what is going to be the soul of this building. And we really wanted to also be upfront and challenge and think about what does gentrification mean um, to a, a neighborhood like this? And, you know, there are, you know, we're not going to have a topic, you know, we'd have a whole discussion about, about gentrification, you know, probably hours of conversation. But, you know, one of the things that has always been striking to me is a lot of our lower income neighborhoods in, in urban cities really need more people with more discretionary income. You know, if we're going to support a commercial corridor, 
it needs to really be a mixed income community. And so, you know, we've been thinking about that in particular, how do we create mixed income communities? And this building is from a global standpoint going to be relatively affordable rents from a local neighborhood. It's certainly pushing the envelope as far as, as rents go. So our rent, for those who, who know AMI, you know, our rents here are going to be between kind of 80. I mean, we go as low as 30% with a few units, but but majority are between kind of 80 and, and 100, 100% of AMI. So still pretty much on the affordable spectrum. But the question is, when new people move into a neighborhood, there is a fear factor, right? You know, it's kind of there goes the neighborhood or who are these people? And that, you know, fear factor is based primarily in, I think, a disconnect between you know, people getting to know each other. So for me, this is this is you'll see a lot of Peace Corps in this in this design. But our goal with this building is to be the most civically engaged building in the country. We are creating a program called the Good Neighbor Program, where we are going to connect any and hopefully all of our residents with local nonprofit groups, organizations, civic groups. And if they volunteer at any any given number of hours in a month, they get a, a rent rebate from us to do so. You know, what excites me most about that design is that we are building bridges. You know, on one hand, we are giving a soft landing for people who maybe they work at a at, at a Comcast in a corporate gig, and you know they want to do something more with their life, but but it's hard to figure out how to do so. Maybe this is a place that they can come to, and they can know that they've got a program that helps them become part of the community because they want to become part of the community, and they get to know the community through the lens of people out there fighting for this neighborhood, and I think that that's that's a big piece of it. But the other piece of it also is that. You know, the neighborhood itself, the folks who live there have been there a long time, who've struggled. We get to humanize the other side too. And they get to say, you know, so hopefully when when these folks pass each other on the street, they're they're waving to each other as opposed to just walking by each other, which, you know, at least in Philadelphia, you know, we've heard from from other neighborhoods is, you know, one of those, you know, just human things that like really piss people off, right? So really hoping to build bridges with this program, with this project. The other thing that we are doing is we have partnered with another developer called Smith & Roller, who's bringing in a program called the IF Lab, which will be a incubator for local businesses, really trying to take the idea of incubation, but bring it into the neighborhoods as opposed to it being in Center City or elsewhere, where maybe, you know, these spaces, especially for, you know, black and brown people feel maybe intimidating. Uh, a space that 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 is in their backyard and 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 really hopefully um, is is uh, a way to uh, also promote economic development in the neighborhood at the same time. Brian, hopefully I'm not jumping the gun here, but another note that I had written down that I, I think is worth mentioning, if if you're okay with it, is is the shift multi neighborhood fund, and it has to do with underserved developers and lifting them up in a way in 2021 and beyond. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or are we still a little too early in the development there? Yeah, no, we, we, we're happy to talk about it. Um, you know, we are launching um, our second fund. And this fund is based off of our own experience. The real estate world is a difficult world to break into as a 
you know, entrepreneur on the tech side, it was very easy for, you know, someone to jump into that space and, and raise capital and succeed or fail and then start again. Real estate doesn't work that way. And I found through my own personal experience, you know, I, I absolutely underestimated the risk that I was probably taking personally. I underestimated the capital that was needed. And this is extra complicated when it comes to impact. You know, our experience, you know, being out there in the world is that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of up and coming impact real estate groups. A majority of them are absolutely black and brown entrepreneurs um, and developers who don't have access to institutional capital. Um, they want to take the next step. Maybe they've got a couple of projects under their belt in their, in their respective cities. And we think we um, have a platform to support them, to uh, raise their game, to help them, you know, attract capital that helps them, you know, become strong regional players wherever they are. You know, it's part of our own experience. Is if something like this was there probably in 2014, 15, you know, I would have absolutely, it would have absolutely been uh, critical for me. Uh, I think it also is the fact that, you know, shift as a group, we're not, I'm not dropping into Baltimore. You know, I don't, we don't know Baltimore. Um, and uh, I think it's unrealistic to, 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 to think so, but, but there's probably a great group in Baltimore and there are great groups in Baltimore, just to be clear. I have a lot of friends in that space there. Um, but there's a lot of folks that maybe don't have that access. And, and so we're excited about this. It's, it's more of a platform play. We're going to invest in platforms with other um, developers and probably, you know, five to seven other developers. You know, we already have a few that we're working with already that we're, we're excited to talk about, but, but not, not there yet. And uh, we're excited to be out there and try to be part of the solution on, on, uh, on this front so that we can create, create just a larger impact real estate space. It's, it's not big enough. It's, it's too challenging to get started. There is not enough capital for needed. And so we want to raise awareness on, on how we can bring more capital into that, into that world. Uh, and we're super excited about it. Yeah, Brian, that, I think that's a great segue into um, a quote that you had that I wrote down. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal it and, and say it first. So hopefully you remember you said this because it's a great quote. But you said, real estate is the canvas where other things can be painted on. And I loved, I just loved that idea. And I think hopefully I'm speaking for other listeners in asking, um, you know, maybe I'm in Baltimore, maybe I'm in Cleveland, maybe I'm, you know, somewhere on the West Coast. How would you uh, speak to other developers and other real estate minds to do something like you're doing? How would they even get started? Is it a mindset? Is it a is it a mix of things? Is it do they need to jump into capital stacks? Like where do they even get started? How do they jump into this to this, I would call it uh, real estate development for good? So the quote, I, I do remember and the context of the quote, I just want to be clear, is that um I I believe that we are not a silver bullet. The real estate space and impact real estate developers are not a silver bullet to tackling the challenges of neighborhoods. And um, however, we are, in my mind, the critical ingredient. And if a group doesn't control real estate, there is very little control that a community can influence on space. But in the right hands, 
And with the right mindset, thinking across not just the private sector, but the public sector, governmental sector, the nonprofit sector, and really trying to be a catalyst to, you know, say, hey, you know, in this metaphor, you know, come onto this canvas with us because we need you all to paint this. Whether and 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 that's the community, that's government, all these pieces. And and it absolutely is true in my own experience. You know, and, and and I don't think it takes a lot to raise your hand, you know, first off and say, hey, I'm I want to be more intentional and I'm raising my hand, you know, whether it is to the local community, a local nonprofit, the city that you're in, and saying, you know, is there something we can do here together that's better? And when it comes to advice for, you know, any anybody out there, large or small, you know, I think it's always put one step in front of the other. You know, I think it really, to me, it's like take small, deliberate, and authentic steps in that direction. It, it doesn't matter the size of your project. I have several folks that I mentor and talk with on a regular basis who are doing, you know, 800 square foot row homes across the city of Philadelphia. And, you know, they are thinking about the small steps that they can take to be more impactful. And each small step leads to opportunities for bigger steps in this space, whether it's you are in a position to partner with a nonprofit to do a project or whether you can take some of the ideas that 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 are out there and let's say crowdfunding or an environmental retrofitting practices or you know maybe services to your tenants that go above and beyond like a you know like a telehealth services that we're doing or or other things there are so many different kind of low hanging fruit here it is overwhelming but don't let that overwhelming stop you from taking kind of some small steps because once you start taking those small steps you realize you know how powerful real estate can be it's time consuming it takes extra effort beyond the typical development process um, but it's it's worth it and you know we need it Brian, before we go, I want to mention the Equitable, Equitable Development Playbook. So this is something that you're developing at Shift, and I, I want to know what that's all about um, and how can listeners uh, get involved or get their hands on it. Like, uh, I think that's a 2021 project for you all. Uh, tell us a little bit about that before we say our goodbyes. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for, thanks for giving me the space to talk about it a little bit. So you know, we, we have recognized and over the years that you know, we, we get inbound calls all the time about programs and things that we're doing. And, you know, even within this podcast, Chris, I, I probably, you know, there there are probably a dozen other things that, that were relevant that, that could have been shared that maybe that low-hanging fruit that, you know, someone might be interested in, or, or maybe the big picture thing that they might be thinking of, and like, let's say a, a creative exit strategy. What we realize is that there really is not a kind of playbook out there. I mean, there, and so, we have started to put together our own best practices, uh, but also best practice from across the country. I mean, there there isn't a, you know, as a month that goes by that I'm not, you know, connecting with a developer that, you know, somehow, you know, has something that that is something we didn't even think of that really excites us. And so we've been putting together kind of a, a booklet, so to speak, of resources that, you know, tries to consolidate this in one place. You know, one example to, on the practical side is community benefits agreements, right? So I know there's probably a lot of listeners out there and it's a big topic of discussion out there is, is you know, setting up a CBA with communities. And, 
And, you know, my experience was that I, I didn't know where to begin. I mean, I couldn't get my hands on templates. I, I, I didn't know, you know, there was, there was all sorts of information out there. So one of the things we've been starting to do is to take community benefits agreements that we've been able to get our hands on and kind of put them in one place. So, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes, but, you know, it, it's, it's a great place to kind of start and say, okay, well, this is what this group does over there. And this is what we could do here uh, and help you understand what a, you know, a CBA could look like. You know, right now, what we're asking for is, you know, we, we, we have been having discussions with various consulting groups out there. We've had discussions with other strategic partners, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we continue to build this thing and what do we do with it? And, and how, do we, how do we work with others to, to get some of those best practices out there and, and grow the larger, you know, the larger ecosystem? So we're open to, you know, inbound discussions about the equitable playbook and, you know, we look forward to chatting with anybody about it. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, for any of the listeners, check out the show notes because we will have links to obviously shift um, and all of the, the topics that we've talked about today. So keep a close eye out, uh, give them a follow um, and just keep a pulse on what they're up to so you can grab that and, and maybe become involved in that playbook if you'd like. Brian, the last thing uh, I want to I want to touch on here and it's really my, one of my favorite questions of the entire podcast is uh, kind of tapping into your brain and, and getting a sense of who you think that we should be paying attention to out there that's in your mind doing groundbreaking or inspiring work. Um, what what names or organizations come to mind for you? It's always tough to, to boil this down to a few. So <laughs> two, the first two of these are, are two partners and, and collaborators with us that I that I really think need to be highlighted nationally. They're both African-American developers. Uh, the first one is in DC, the Minkiti Group. You know, Bo Minkiti and, and his team are just doing some absolutely uh, incredible projects, both in DC and Anacostia, uh, in the neighborhood of Anacostia, but as well as um, Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, you know, same mindset as, as Shift. You know, they have built one of the largest urban residential brokerage groups in the country and are, are partnering up with, uh, you know, just some great folks. And I'm really excited. And I think, I think that's a group that you got to pay attention to. The second is closer to home in Philadelphia, Mosaic Development Partners, uh, Greg Reeves, uh, Leslie Smallwood. We partnered with them on a, on a project with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. They recently won a enormous RFP to do the Navy Yard in Philadelphia. But, you know, the most creative developers with the least amount of resources I've ever met in my life. They're the first group in the country to do a new market tax credit opportunity zone and crowdfunded project. They are modular gurus um, and they do more with with you know uh, less dollars than anybody I, I've met. Absolutely got to follow them. Third group is um, Trust Neighborhoods and David Kemper uh, out of Kansas City. I bring them up because uh, we also have a group called the Kensington Corridor Trust, which is really these two groups, I think, are leading the charge on exit strategies and new new capital formations to protect neighborhoods. Um, look them up. Awesome stuff. And then the final group, I promise, Chris, is my good friend uh, Tebow Mannequin and Seawall Development out of Baltimore. They have built their name on, on on working in a neighborhood called Remington, but really leading with listening, uh, leading 
uh, just leaders in the space. And I so look up to what they've been able to accomplish uh, over the years with Teach for America. In fact, our Jason Trail project is, is, is mirrored off of that. Um, they're doing some great food hall work uh, in Baltimore, and they just lead with their heart. And, and absolutely a group that uh, I, I have such strong admiration for. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and just a reminder, we're going to share all these links in the show notes. So take a look at those and follow up while you're listening or, or maybe after you've captured the podcast. Brian, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for stopping by Transforming Cities. There's just one more thing to do. That's to uh, to roll out this red carpet I have here on my end your way and ask you to just tell us what you're up to and where where listeners can find you online. Sure. I mean, we are at shiftcapital.us. Um, we're on the we're on the Insta, and you can find some of our projects through that. And uh, you know, we we are certainly looking to looking at building our shift multi neighborhood fund. So we're we're open to to inbound conversations on that front. Uh, but you can find us through that website. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty accessible as well. I'm happy to connect with anybody. I love it, Brian. Thank you once again for joining us. I appreciate it, Chris. Keep doing, uh, keep doing this great work. I appreciate you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.